Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. What you're about to hear is class two, part two of a class I taught at Loyola Marymount University and it was titled The Buddhist Eightfold Path, A Way to Happiness. So this is class two, part two of a ten-part series of talks I gave in the spring of 2007 at Loyola Marymount University. So now we come to the action part. The four parts of speech uh, we've, we've talked about. Now we come to what is right action or what is unskillful action. And unskillful action is uh, taking a life, taking what is not given, and sexual misconduct. So, what's the problem with taking a life? Well, one of the major problems with taking a life is it's really hard to be born. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but uh, in Buddhism, we feel that we've been reborn many, many times. And this is just one in a series of rebirths that we're going to experience. So it's probably no surprise that Buddhists are here, as well as Hindus, because they have been reincarnated many times. But you Christians, this is your first time. What took you so long? And now you only got 60, 70 years to get it right, and you're looking at eternity. You got a whole lot of work to do. <laughs> we can sort of, you know, be slackers occasionally, figuring it's just another lifetime, you know? So if you take someone's life and this is their only lifetime, wow, that's a big deal. They may not have finished their work. They may not be ready to get reborn. Even Christians are reborn one more time. You know? So, um, taking a life is a big deal. It's the biggest deal when the life taken is a human. And I know that might sound cruel to you, especially if you have cats and dogs. I have a cat and a dog that I take care of. And the little guy, the little cat, sleeps with me every night. His name's Fernelli. And he's the best little cat, but he has very little spiritual potential. He, he's pretty much instinctual. He reacts. He doesn't respond. And, and so if you had to choose between the value of a life, a human life would have more value according to Buddhism because of the potential of compassion and wisdom that the cat or dog lacks. Now, we, we shouldn't feel bad about the cats and the dogs because as a Buddhist, what we like to do is share the sutras with them so they can hear the Dharma. They can smell the incense burning. They can smell the Dharma. They see the statue of the Buddha. So they see the Dharma, and that's planting seeds. And they can be reborn then as a human being because of those seeds we've planted. So all the little cats and dogs and fish and birds at our center have a real good chance of being reborn as human beings because we've worked hard. I like that idea. But what happens if you have to take a life? What happens if you're a police officer 
And you are paid to serve and protect your community, and you find yourself in a situation where you need to take a life. What happens then? And I've had that question asked to me, and I tell them, don't take a life out of hatred and anger. That increases the karmic consequences dramatically. Take a life out of service and duty to the community, because that's your job. Have equanimity, have indifference, and don't hesitate. Can you imagine if you're a police officer and are weighing, should I kill him, should I not kill him? And, and I know they get into trouble. We've seen it on the news. But they don't have that luxury. They can't be philosophical. They don't have the time. They have to react, not even respond. And hopefully they've trained themselves and been trained enough to react in a way that will take care of the situation without increasing their suffering or karmic, karmic consequences too much. Now, there's a wonderful Zen story that illustrates what I've just said. A samurai warrior was protecting a shogun who got killed. And samurai warrior felt guilty. It was his karma. And what did he have to do? He had to revenge the killing of the shogun. He had to find the person that killed him and take his life. Well, it took him a year until he found out what village this guy was living in. So at 4 o'clock in the morning, he went, knocked on the door, pulled out his sword, getting ready to kill this man. The door opened, he saw the man, and he had so much anger and hatred that he put the sword back in the sheath and left. Because the samurai couldn't kill out of hatred and anger, only duty. And he couldn't kill that man out of duty. Now, I think that's a wonderful example because can we have equanimity about taking a life? Probably not. I would think if you're taking this class, you're not going to have equanimity about taking a life, that you know taking a life is wrong. And the first precept every Buddhist takes is not to take life. That's the first one. That's where it starts. And yet the irony is that we are taking life every moment of every day. We have to eat. Everything that's nutritious had a life. Now, I know if you're a vegetarian, you say, well, look at me. And I say, you just didn't hear the broccoli scream when you pulled it out of the ground. You know? That our life depends on the lives of others, whether they be animal or vegetable. You know? And so isn't it ironic that the very first precept is not to take life, and yet if we truly, truly didn't take life, we would die? So... Can we take the least amount of life to sustain our life? Which is a great argument for being a vegetarian. Can you sustain yourself on the lowest life form possible? And a lot of people do. If you, if you want to eat higher life forms, can you eat them and not kill them? Can you have somebody else kill them for you? Or, if you're a farmer, can you go out and kill that little sheep who just looks up at you, those big eyes, with equanimity. You've even named it Dolly the Sheep. And now you're going to eat Dolly the Sheep. I, I couldn't be a farmer. I, I, if, if I was on a farm, I'd be a vegetarian. I, I couldn't kill those animals. 
Because I would name them, I would feed them, I'd walk them. I could eat them. It would be just too real. <laughs> but I'm an urban fellow, and I go to the grocery store, and I see, you know, um, chuck steak. What the heck is a chuck steak? Or filet mignon? What is that? Did that ever walk the earth, filet mignon? Well, those euphemistic terms we use for parts of meat allow us to be deluded into thinking it just tastes good with a little A1 sauce and maybe some mashed potatoes. Hey, that's great. I can't see the animal yet. That's why I still eat cheeseburgers. I can't see the animal. I just see the hamburger. I've been conditioned very well by years of McDonald's commercials, Golden Arches. It's a fun place to go to with all that death and destruction in the back, fried and greased, you know. So taking a life creates a whole lot of suffering to us and, of course, the person whose life is taken or the animal whose life is taken. Taking what is not given is creates a lot of suffering because we all think we own the stuff we have. And, and it's a conspiracy, to say the least. We go in and they give us a receipt. And sometimes, if we use a charge card, the receipt even has our name on it, showing that we now own this video iPod. It's ours to do with as we wish. And if somebody comes up and takes our video iPod, we feel violated because that's ours. We bought it. We have the receipt right here. It has our name on it. Do we really own anything? Of course not. Of course not. It's an illusion. It came to me back in the early 80s. I had just bought my first new car. It was an Opal Manta, sold by Buick, flag blue, four on the floor, radio with audio cassette. I felt like I was in a Ferrari, $3,700 out the door. Man, I drove that. I felt so good. I'd be shifting and shifting and changing channels. Then one day, I was going to go to work, and I went out into the driveway, and I noticed the window was broken. And where the cassette radio used to be, now I noticed there was just this sort of gaping hole there. And I was angry. And I went over to my car, and I said, Car, who owns you? Don't I own you? I'm making the payments. I'm paying the insurance. And I listened carefully for a response, and my car said nothing back. And at that point, I realized I was just using my car until somebody wanted it more than I did. I was just using it until it was going to break or rust or be stolen, but I never owned it. And I can remember the following day looking in the mirror saying, Do I own me? Am I in charge of me? Can I prevent me from getting old? Can I prevent me from getting sick? Can I prevent me from dying? If I can't even own myself, why would I think I own a car? Because 
I'm deluded. And everybody else around thinks they own stuff. So because of this ownership, we feel violated when our stuff is messed with. And in Buddhism, they get really specific about this. In the Thai forest tradition, which is the tradition at Abayagiri in Northern California, I was at a conference. A variety of Buddhists, monks and nuns, were gathering at the conference. It was a Western monastic conference. And that day at Shasta Abbey, we had freshly picked apples as our dessert. And one of the forest monks had a beautiful apple, large and red, and just looked so ripe and delicious. And I noticed another monk come up and pick it up and and admire it as well and say, this is a good apple. And he set it back down on the table. And that forest monk could not touch that apple until it was re-offered to him because by touching the apple, ownership was transferred. That's how strict this stuff is. So if you're ever eating with a bunch of monks, don't touch their food. Because then they can't eat it. Isn't that interesting? So ownership plays a very important part in Buddhism as well. And in the monastic community, you don't own stuff. You use stuff. The stuff is there to be used. And I always get a kick out of some of the temples in Los Angeles because parked in the back of this sort of run-down Buddhist temple is a Mercedes-Benz. And you see the little monk in the Mercedes and drive to where he has to go. He didn't buy that. It was given to him by a layperson who didn't want the monk to drive something that wasn't suitable for him. So the monk doesn't own that car. The monk just uses that car. And when I look at the stuff I think I own, I'm coming to the conclusion that, no, I really don't. I'm just using it until I can't find it anymore or it doesn't work anymore. Or I lend it and it's not given back. (laughs) And there you go. This is the stuff that I use. And if I'm just using it, I'm less attached to it. I can appreciate what it can do for me, but it's also a little easier to give it up as well, too. Last but not least is one of the most difficult uh, aspects of the Eightfold Path, and that's sexual misconduct. And and, uh, tomorrow I'm going to Corona Del Mar High School in uh, Newport Beach. They're going to have a Diversity Day celebration, and they invited me to be on a religious panel. They said, Kusala, you're the diversity. Please come. I said, okay. And when I speak to high schools, uh, sexual misconduct is a big issue. Because when I was young, when I was in high school, uh, it was pretty black and white. It was pretty clear. There was a lot of stuff we couldn't do. And the rest of the stuff that we did do, we felt guilty about. And so, but now, what's to feel guilty about? Can't you do anything now? Isn't the whole purpose of having sexuality to find your true nature and be happy the rest of your life? And if only you find the right combination of leather mask and, you know, you go, wow. It's so complicated now. I really feel sorry for the young people because they, they don't know right and wrong. I don't think. In the way I did when I was young. So what did the Buddha say about this? This is the coolest thing, I think. What the Buddha implied when he talked about sex was this. 
Sexual activity will never satisfy the desire for sex. And what that means to me is you could be 80 years old, had sex 10,000 times, been given the gift of Viagra, and still not be satisfied. You still haven't found the right combination. You can have sex all day and all night, maybe chemically induced, and still want it again the following week. My gosh, what a dilemma for us as humans. We don't even have a mating season. It's open season all the time. I often fantasized, wouldn't it be cool if at 40, arbitrary age, that we just lost all desire for sex? And so the second half of our life, we could devote that energy and fantasy to things that are really important, things that mean something, things that could change the world in a positive way. And I thought as I got older, that I would have less fantasy. You know, they're even more complicated than they were before. I'm more aware of them now. And I see that it is simply fantasy. But wow. And you might think to yourself, well, maybe I'll just be celibate. Well, the problem with being celibate is you have now a desire not to have sex. And the problem is the desire, it's not the sex. So if you have a desire to have sex and you have a desire not to have sex, you're going to suffer, but just in a different way. So the answer in Buddhism is to end all desire. And if you ended all desire, would you want to have sex? Probably not. And that's exactly what the Buddha did in his nirvana. The Buddha, before he achieved nirvana, was a prince. He had dancing girls who played musical instruments for him, wore sheer clothing. What a wonderful young life he had. Then he got married at 16 to a beautiful woman, had a child. And yet, when he achieved nirvana at the age of 35, he never had sex again. He had ended desire, all desire, for everything. He still ate, because eating was required to stay alive. He still needed medicine and shelter, clothing. But sex, we don't really need to stay alive. makes life a lot better, of course. But we really don't need it. Ultimately, what did the Buddha say to monks and nuns? A whole lot. He said to monks in particular, if you penetrate another human being as much as a sesame seed, you are no longer a monk. Your ordination is forfeited. Even if no one sees you, you are no longer a monk. So, it's one of our It's one of our primary rules we follow. We have four root vows. Uh, Not to have sex. Not to take what is not given. There's a certain value connected to that. So if you take like more than 20 bucks from somebody, you're no longer a monk. Uh, Not to um, take a life. If you take a human life, you are no longer a monk. And... If you lie about your spiritual attainments, you are no longer a monk. Those are the four root vows. And all the other precepts, all the other vows that we take, come out of those four. So those are really important. So sexual misconduct is a big one.
And uh, I was just listening to an audio uh, of a monk who gave back his ordination after 19 years ordained as a monk. And why? Because he met this woman. He's getting a little on in his life. He'd been single and in community with other men for a long time, and then this woman came into his life. And he realized that he wanted to be with her. He wanted to share her life. And what did he do? He did the right thing. He gave back his ordination. And there's a small ceremony that monks and nuns go through to give back the ordination. And there's no stigma. It's not a failure. You were a monk, and you just decided not to be a monk any longer. In Thailand, oftentimes the boys are monks during school vacation for three months. Parents are really encouraging them, like going to camp, you know, and you shave your head and get to wear the robes and, and learn it the monk way. And then when school starts, you go back to being a regular person. But you learn something about yourself every time you take ordination, every time you think of yourself as a monk or a nun. So there's no stigma in that, and that's the, that's the proper way to do it. And now he's a Dharma teacher, and he's leading retreats and talking about Buddhism, but he's doing it as a layperson now not a monk. And he's happy. He became a monk early in life. He became a monk in his 20s. And I think in the West that might be a bit too young. I think in the West we might want to be a bit older and get that stuff out of the way because I can't think of a better way to die than being a monk. Now that might sound really weird, but can you imagine having your whole sangha around you helping you die when it's time to go? Not having to go to a hospital and be looked at as a failure because none of the therapies or medications worked on you. And we lost another one. But being surrounded by other spiritual people, like-minded spiritual people, who realize you need to die so you can live again. No failure in that. It's just time for transition. And oftentimes, monks, when they get older, are more respected rather than less respected because of their life experiences, their history on this earth. And what other occupation are you going to get where they want you to work more as you get older rather than less? Now, if you're 50 and try to find a job, it's difficult because they've got all those 20-year-olds looking for work. They've got to pay off their student loans. You know? And when you get 60 or 70, it's volunteer. You know? But as a monastic, as a clergy, there is wisdom in age. There is wisdom in life experience that can be shared with others. So for me, I'm glad I sort of messed around and learned the lessons of life when I was young and then in my 40s decided to become ordained. Because it's a bit easier. But I still have the desire not to have sex because there are moments when I want to have sex and I realize it's not the sex that's the problem. In Buddhism, sexuality is fine and natural, and the reason we're all here. It's that desire for sex that creates all this suffering. All this suffering. And that's what goes away with nirvana. So we have not to kill. Yes? Sorry, but isn't it sort of like a consciousness oxymoron? Because you're trying to achieve nirvana where there is no desire. In order to achieve nirvana, you need rebirth. In order to have rebirth, you need to procreate. So, 
somewhere in there is their appropriation without desire for each other, which I find is antithetical, really, to the love making and the passion between a man and a woman. Yeah. Because the beauty of it is that the life comes between passion, desire, love. Yeah. That yeah, I've often said people don't have kids, they have sex. You know, and kids just and come sometimes along. Sometimes they do, but. <laughs> but I mean, do you see? So the rebirth. I see. You're not going to get to nirvana. I see. There's going to be no rebirth. Yeah, that's one of the things Catholics ask a lot too. If everybody becomes a Catholic priest or a nun, Absolutely. who's going to have the kids? Absolutely. Well, I don't think we have to worry about that. No. Because <laughs> there's an, an, enough billboards in our world and enough websites on the internet to keep us sexually active for decades to come. You know, it, it's rare that someone wants to go past that, transcend that. It's it's not something a normal person would want to do. And and the irony of going past your sexuality is that you can be far more intimate with people you have relationships with. There's there's uh, there's uh, an honesty. There's no hidden agenda. And and there's just coming together as humans. It's wonderful. You know, uh, uh, I'm much more intimate with women in my life than I've ever been before. And I never thought that would have happened. You know, and with men too, but men is a little different. You know, I was never sexually attracted to men. So men were always sort of buddies. And I, uh, so we sort of still buddies, you know, that's good. But with women, it's, it's changed a lot. And I find I have many more women in my life than I've ever had before. Who would have thought? You know? But I, I don't. I don't mean you forsake yourself. I'm just saying that. Yeah. Uh, no, I understand. From the Buddha's point of view, so that procreation was fine, but it was a desire for sex. Yeah. That he. That the problem. Yeah. Therein lies. Therein lies the, the problem. problem. So there's the rub. And yeah, and and in in. In an ideal way, we would all lose our desire for sex, and then no more human rebirth, and then we would all be in nirvana, and we would exist forever without ever being born. Well, it, you know, it, it, it's not going to work that way for probably another 10 million years, because we're just so hardwired to mate, you know, and to be attracted, and, and to get delusional, you know. It's fascinating to see, especially because I'm at UCLA and I get to see the students and, and they, you know, if they're having a relationship, you can just see they look at each other and they're not seeing each other at all. Their eyes are real big like cow eyes and they're just sort of like seeing the ideal person in front of them. Love. Lust. It's a wonderful elixir, you know. And then a few months down the line, the reality comes, you know. And now they're friends again. And then a couple more months, they're strangers. You know, and you go, wow, isn't that interesting how that all works? You know, and right now I just heard on NPR that there were more women who are not in relationship than ever before. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, because back in the 50s when my folks were married, that was, that was not the case. Everybody needed a man in their life. And at the time of the Buddha, it was almost a necessity for your survival to have a man in your life, a woman. And, and now women are becoming, uh, you know, uh, equal, liberated, and men aren't as necessary as they used to be at one level of looking at it. I'm thinking, wow, we've come a long way. You know, isn't that interesting? But what does that do 
to the to the next generation and the next generation and the way they look at relationships and they look at coming together. Does that mean now you're going to have to marry friends? Instead of being lovers and lustful, you're going to find a woman that you really like and she's going to be your friend and you're going to say, let's get married. What a radical concept that is. You know? <laughs> And we'll share our life together, and I'll support you, and you'll support me, and, and I'll encourage you to succeed, and you'll encourage me to succeed. And what a radical concept that is. You know, so it keeps changing, and, and I think we're always going to have those strong desires when it comes to that. That's one of our fundamental desires. But if you find yourself in middle age, if you find yourself out of a relationship, if you find yourself not in a career that's satisfying, if you find yourself at a place where happiness does not seem to be accessible, becoming a clergy is a very healthy alternative. It gives new meaning to your life. It gives you a whole new way of looking at yourself and others and your relationships. And it also gives you a chance at transcendence. It gives you a chance to be free. Free in this very lifetime. And what a concept that freedom is. Because none of us have been free yet. You know, I, I have never had an original thought. It's a bummer. Every thought I've ever had was always based on other thoughts that others had, or experiences others had, or I had. And just that one original thought, that one, those, uttering those words that have never been spoken before. Wow, wouldn't that be just so cool? But I'm not free yet. I, I can't get to that place of freedom yet to, to see the world for the first time. One of my favorite commercials a couple years ago was a cornflakes commercial. And it said, taste it again for the first time. And, and I'd like to taste my life again for the first time. And that only comes out of freedom. And this whole eightfold path, this whole practice is designed to make me free. And everything along the way is conducive to freedom. And having monastic vows is one of the ways to be free. Wow, isn't that cool? So a lot of people feel sorry for me because I'm not in a, uh, uh, a sexual relationship. And there are moments in my life when I feel sorry for myself. But generally speaking, it really simplifies things. You know, I don't even need to pluck my eyebrows. Have you seen these guys that pluck their eyebrows now and they have little earrings and stuff? Metrosexual. And I'm thinking, gosh, why can't we just be guys and have gray hair and wrinkles and maybe not shave every day? And that's okay. Why do we have to look so pretty? You know, I don't, you know so I, and I don't have to. I can just be old and gray and wrinkly and all that kind of stuff. I do use deodorant because I don't want to offend anybody. But, you know, there are a couple days when I don't and my cats don't care and the dog could care less how I smell. And it feels good to be authentic like that once in a while. You know? And, and then I go into community shopping or something and I see all the stuff. And I see how hard it is to be cool and desirable. And I don't need to be desirable anymore. That's a luxury. I can be invisible. And that might not sound like a luxury, but, but it's nice not to be noticed sometimes. 
You know, if you need to buy something, it's not very good because they never see you. But you know, but other than that, it's like, yeah, okay, I have, I can have my life, I can be free. I'm not subject to the to the same pressures that you are, because you're in this community, and it's a very complicated community to live in, and be a viable member. And I don't have to be a viable member anymore. I have left home. That's what taking ordination is. You leave home, home being the greater community. And you find your home now in another community. And when I dress like this, there's only one place I fit in, and that's at my center. If I dress like this, out there, I don't fit in anywhere. And people know it. Oh, he doesn't fit. Be careful. We don't know who he is or what he's doing, but look at the way he's dressed. Maybe he's trying out for UPS. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> so it's this thing of freedom. And these precepts, this eightfold path, is really all about becoming free. Most cool. Man, I just talk too much. In the last five minutes, I'd like to talk about right livelihood because that's important. And, and I was asked at USC, I was giving a talk to some students at USC, and one of the guys was a business major, and his parents had spent all sorts of money to send him to USC. So he could make a lot of money, and he was feeling guilty about making a lot of money. And he said, is it okay for a Buddhist to make a lot of money? And I said, oh, yes. Think how much more money you can give away. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of money as long as you don't own it, as long as you use it. And so the Buddha explained, you know, you, you spend a quarter, you save a quarter, you give a quarter away, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's, he, he even knew back then that people weren't very skillful with their money. But right livelihood for a Buddhist means trying to find an occupation that allows you to make a living that does not increase suffering. And so what kind of work could you do that would allow you to live as well as you wanted to, but didn't increase the suffering of the community. And, and that's a challenge now. You know, when you look at, when I talk to the students at UCLA, and all the different majors they have, and, and the plans they have for the future, and what direction they want to go in. And a lot of them, you know, like scientists and biochemists and stuff like that, I'm thinking, really cool. That's, that's a great way to spend your time. And if you uh, end up being, you know, the old, you know, the old cliche, like a trash collector, well, that's good, too, because that helps society. We need people to pick up the trash, because we have a lot of trash in this culture. We have too many things, and they're all wrapped nicely. What do you do with all those wrappings? Trash. So what can you do? What kind of work can you find that allows you to make a living and decrease suffering Ultimately, rather than increasing suffering. Well, my line of work qualifies. With the kind of work I'm doing right now, perfect. Not for everybody, though. But, teacher, great. Sharing knowledge, making people better, encouraging them to be the best they can be in this life. Wonderful. You know? Lawyer? I don't know. <laughs> Physician? Good. Yes. You know? So that's the first part of the Buddhist path. Those path factors, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. How do we live in the world? How can we be skillful? How can we reduce suffering? 
and that's where it starts. And next week, we're going to start talking about meditation, which everybody wants to talk about. And two different kinds of meditation, tranquility meditation and insight meditation. And we'll spend two weeks on that because that's a big topic. And we'll meditate, too. Now, um, people want to meditate. I always feel it's so waste of time. We just sit here quietly with each other. But I'm beginning to change a little bit because there's something wonderful about sitting quietly together with other people. There's a, there's a certain energy that's shared and a certain community that's created when you sit quietly with each other, as you know. And so we'll do that for a couple of weeks. And then finally, the last week, we'll get into the, the wisdom aspects and maybe how to apply some of these path factors to our everyday life and make our lives that much better and those around us that much better, too. So thank you for taking the time. Yes, please. Uh, just an, an analogy that I that I heard one time on the subject of life with um, the idea that we try to be like the bee and not the mosquito. But the bee mm. goes to the flower and creates as it does its activity, whereas the mosquito goes to the, the animal or the human and creates pain. So whatever the job is, whatever the, the livelihood is, think, am I being a mosquito or am I being a bee? Am I, I like creating that. good things or am I creating bad things? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, those mosquitoes are rascals. <laughs> you know, yeah, cool. Good, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. If you have anything else you want to talk about, it, we'll, we'll officially end now so I, so I stay in the time frame that I've been allotted. But I'd be glad to, you know, if you have any questions or comments, I would be more than happy to... Uh Well, that's it. That was Class 2, Part 2 of a 10-part series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. You can find more podcasts on iTunes. Uh, do a search for Urban Dharma. And uh, if you'd like to go to my website, you can find more podcasts at dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. Well, that's it. Um, until the next podcast, until the next time, be happy. Be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.